ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Dun, 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 dun. Introducing first, at a combined weight of 532 pounds, Brian, Chad, Parr. This is Starcade 86. Dun, 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 dun. Next match is Ron Garvin versus Big Bubba. Um, and Garvin comes out to the Starcade music. Yes. Um, this is a this is a Louisville street fight rather than an Atlanta street fight. And my understanding is that this is because Big Bubba is from Louisville, Louisville. Bubba's with Jim Cornette, and he comes out to I think the Blues Brothers music. Mm-hmm. He looks huge at this point, and is about he's announced at three five seven. I actually thought he may be closer to 400. He looks really big and young. Any any story here? Yeah, yeah there's a the, between these two, not much. But I I would like to say that of anybody that really got screwed from the Magnum TA accident was Ronnie Garvin. Um, they had been leading towards, as we'll see when we get to our main event, the main event of Starcade actually being Ric Flair and Ronnie Garvin for the NWA title. Um, they, in the weeks leading up, they mentioned uh, the the match possibly happening. Um, it's 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 common pretty much. You see Garvin start to cut some interviews in September about you know his, his he'd like to put his goal back on the the world title now, and he's coming for Flair. And then the Magnum thing happens, uh, everything gets shuffled around, and basically they quickly have uh, Jim Cornette's guys on the uh, November eighth, nineteen eighty six NWA Pro. They attack Ronnie Garvin, and Bubba drops a couple of big splashes on him. Next couple of weeks, Cornette and his guys are gloating in interviews, and they, they announce this street fight. So it, it was nothing nothing of consequence you know, that would lead up to this. I'm not even sure why they went this route being a street fight, maybe to make it a little more interesting or something. But you know, Ronnie Garvin went from possibly headlining Starcade to this. Big Bubba is... Uh... Jim Cornette's bodyguard at this time, so he's kind of wearing similar sort of gear to what he'd wear as boss man. And I'm just wondering, did he have some sort of fetish about wearing a shirt in the ring? Like, it was obviously his thing, because he, he's doing it here and he'd do it for most of his career. A little bit strange. I, I, don't, I don't know how you can wrestle, like, in, in the outfits he wrestles into. That I mean, like, I know if I'm at work and I'm dressed up in a you know dress shirt and pants stuff, it's hard enough if I have to hurry to do something. I, I can't imagine being in a long physical contest like that. Yeah, and imagine being like almost 400 pounds and doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unusual. We, we get a few jabs from Garvin to start. Um, there's, an aw- there's an awesome moment. Uh, Garvin kind of drops to the outside and Cornette runs away from him <laughs> and then shouts, come on Garvin, you coward, which, uh, which <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. Um, Garvin throws water in Bubba's face and then punches the crap out of him. The crowd is wild. 
Um, Garvin rips on uh, Bubba's shirt, but then Bubba has a roll of nickels and nails Garvin. Uh, Garvin has a rope, chokes Bubba with it, bites his face. Bubba gets some knees um, and a bear hug. But while we while he's in this bear hug, Garvin gets two very nasty looking headbutts on uh, on him. Then we get a third and a fourth, and some boxing jabs from Garvin. Big right to send Bubba out. Um, what else happens here? We get more rights from Garvin. Um, they go back to the outside. What else? Um, Garvin, uh, Big Bubba goes to the top rope, which I thought was mental given his size, and Garvin slams him from the top. We get a ref, Young. Uh, we, we get a ref bump, and of course the referee is uh, Tommy Young. So of course we get a ref bump. There's a pile driver from Garvin, but then. Um, Cornette nails Garvin, and they're down for the 10 count, so we think we may have a draw situation here. But then Tommy Young says there can be no draw in this match. We must have a winner. Um, the first man up wins. Cornette comes in. Young pushes him out. Garvin gets to his knees. Bossman, as he's trying to get up, grabs uh, Tommy Young. I'm saying, look behind you, Tommy, because Garvin's basically up at this point. Um, while Young is still trying to kind of get Bossman off him, uh, Cornette nails him with the tennis racket. Big Bubba gets up for the win. So I thought this was pretty good stuff. I thought Garvin in particular looked pretty good in this sort of setting. Um, but uh, not only did he get screwed out of the main event, Brian, he actually lost this match as well. <laughs> And uh, really, I mean, uh, he may have lost. I'm sure he was going to lose the the main event as well. But at least he would have main evented Starcade. Chad, your thoughts on this match? I thought this match was uh, really good. Uh, some good bra brawling. Um, I, I mean, that it's called a street fight, but you know, it, it's a, essentially a last man standing match. Um, you know, for people that watch matches now. It's a last man standing match. The finish is one that we've seen a ton before where both guys are down. The baby face would have won, but, you know, gets hit with something from a manager or something like that, and the uh, heel ends up winning. I thought Bobo looked pretty green, but uh, looked good, and I thought they did really good in really uh, making sure that when he left his feet, when he got knocked off his feet, that was a big deal. So you had a lot of him kind of teetering like a tree in the forest and, uh, you, you know, getting slammed to the outside and all of that. So when he finally was down flat on the mat at the end, it made it pretty dramatic. So overall, I thought this was a good match. Yeah, and I, I, I agree that he did look green here. Um, I mean, he doesn't do a lot of the spots that we know from him from him later in his career. Um, but like Garvin really shines in a setting like this, where he's allowed to do all of his kind of um, kind of boxing moves, his his punches. Like he throws some really good punches, Garvin, in this match. And the fact that Bubba's not going down makes him even better for me, because he has to like hit him five or six times before getting him off his feet. Um, Bubba wouldn't stick around, Brian, is that right? Uh, Big Bubba, he would be around for 
Not much longer now because he would head off to WWF land another. He's around through part of 87 um, for a little while, actually, before heading off to become the big boss man. It's, it's not till 88 when he's tagging with Akeem. Yeah, he, he comes in first as a heel um, by himself, the boss man. And then uh, I know after Akeem from the one-man gang turns into Akeem, they, they tag him up. The thing that surprised me here is that the big bub Bubba gimmick was essentially very similar to his uh, big boss man gimmick. But then when, like, years later when he comes back, the gimmick is totally different. Yeah, he goes through so many gimmicks between uh, now and the end of his career. That, uh, I mean, he has boss man most of the time, but when he comes back to WCW at that point in 93, he is what, like, he's like the boss, the man. Big Bubba, it's it's a mess. Guardian Angel, Guardian Angel, Ray Trailer. Yeah, yeah, kind of a sort of an underrated guy, I guess. Like he, you know, um, he's not a bad worker or anything, is he? He he got better with age. He really like. I even like a lot of the stuff he was doing in '98 when he was uh, tagging with uh, Ken Shamrock, and he was part of. That's it, man's corporation. So I think he's always been pretty pretty good in the ring. Yeah, but did, like at this point, a little bit less agile than we'd know him. I think he he or or he was definitely working as a bigger man here than 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 he would end up doing. I think. Yeah, he's he's a real big guy. Uh, Bossman's actually one of the wrestlers I've been able to meet um, because he lived in Dallas, Georgia, which. I, I grew up in uh, Carrollton, Georgia, so that was about a 30-minute drive from there. And kind of through a, a friend that I knew, I actually babysitted Bossman's kids. So I've, wow. I've met the Bossman, and he, he was huge. Nice guy. Yeah, he was nice. He was nice. Hey, Chad, is he a good payoff guy? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think he paid the uh, going rate for the babysitting services, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I've got a couple of little interesting uh, wrestling. I mean, I guess living around the Atlanta area and how so many wrestlers were uh, were sort of camped out here. I have a couple of uh, interesting notes about Bossman and a few more that we'll get to when we start talking about them. But uh, yeah, he he was big. I mean, I was I was probably sixteen at the time, uh, which you know I'm six one and two hundred and forty pounds, so I'm a pretty big guy myself. Uh, and at this, you know, when I was 16, I was probably, I was almost 6'1 then and probably, you know, 200 pounds. And he, he was, he towered over me both in size and height. Wow. Did, did you get a chance to ask him any questions or? I, it was just, it was sort of like in passing. It was actually a, like a ball festival type thing. Uh, but, but he, uh, he actually had, uh, some, some eight by tens in his car, so he he went to his car and signed me an autograph. So oh, that's I, awesome! I do have a big boss man autograph uh, framed in my house. It's awesome. not framed, but I do I do still have it somewhere what, in a he, box. Did he sign it, Ray Trailer or Boss Man or what? He, he signed it, Ray Trailer, but uh, but it it was from his uh, WWF his final run. So he's in sort of his like black corporation uh, cop suit and it, it says boss man at the bottom but he signed it right trailer that's absolutely awesome <laughs> anyway, anyway um, 
we we going into our next match. We have um, Dusty Rhodes versus Tully Blanchard uh, yet again for the TV title, and this is a first blood match. So this card is pretty gimmick crazy. Like there's a lot of. Uh, is there any normal matches apart from uh, Brad Armstrong versus Jimmy Garvin? Every single the, match has got the main event. Step. The main event's the only other one that's, oh, yeah, that has no stipulations on it. Tully, uh, Tully's looking pretty pissed off coming to the ring. He's with JJ Dillon. He he's got his game face on. Um, Dusty, we actually see him coming from the locker room. He's got really short hair. He's in a Magnum TA T-shirt. He is a uh, over like Rover, as they say, and he comes out to his own cover version of Bo Diddley's uh, "Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover." I actually spent about 20 minutes trying to find who this cover version was by, and I have reason to believe that it's Dusty himself singing on this, which is a uh, pretty good considering. Like he he's got a decent voice. <laughs> <laughs> So, as things start off here, some plan of J.J. Dillon's backfires. Um, and I, I don't know what I was doing here. Maybe I was writing notes or distracted, but I didn't actually see. What was Dillon's plan? Okay, on, on this version, that was cut. Yeah, this is the only match on that New Zealand version that's clipped. I see. So, I, 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 I noticed that too, because, I mean, in, in this version, it's really bizarre, because you get the introductions, and then all of a sudden, you see JJ sort of shaking his head, and you see just his back, and then two seconds later, you see him where he's, he's completely bloody, and uh, so I had to uh, find other means to find out what happened uh, to JJ here. So, so what did happen? Well, uh, he was trying to uh, Vaseline Tully and do a couple of tactics uh, in order for Tully not to bleed, and that got shooed off, and then eventually uh, Dusty gave JJ the bionic elbow, and that's what's cut him open. It was one elbow shot, uh, but I thought that was actually, I, I cannot believe they did not include that in this version, because I thought that was one of the more brilliant uh, facets of this match in that it showed that, you know, Dusty's elbow is such a powerful weapon that, you know, it can bust somebody open with just one shot. So That's right. 
it, it was a great, you know, strategy move, uh, you know, that they played off of it. Yeah, like, whoever was editing this, you'd have thought, you know, maybe we could have lost two minutes of the headlock that Brad Armstrong had Garvin in in that first match and got the two minutes of, uh, you know, quite an important plot point during this match. But there we are. Um, there's some extremely camp stuff from Dusty here um, with the cocked elbow and then the gay lean in the corner. And um, I don't think Dusty's ever been camper than he is at the start of this match. Like, he's really kind of um, doing his strutting here. Before, before we get any further, Brian, is there any... Uh, this is just a continuation of their long, long run of people. It, it is. There, there were some, some twists and turns along the way um, without uh, going on too long as my voice is starting to slide again. Um, basically, uh, Tully ended up costing Dusty Rhodes the world title uh, back in August that he had won from Flair at the Bash. He, he helped Flair injure Dusty's leg, so when they had a rematch again in St. Louis or Kansas City... Dusty ended up passing out from the pain of the figure four and ended up losing the title. Um, in, in the weeks since then, in mid-October, Dusty got his revenge by attacking Tully and injuring his leg by beating him with a chair and slapping on the figure four and not releasing it. Uh, funny thing about that is, if you ever hunt down the video for that, I highly recommend it's it's on uh, it's on the um, October twenty fifth uh, worldwide. It's one of the places they show it. Dusty has it on, and he's holding the second rope, and one wrestler after another comes in to try to break it, and Dusty is able to throw them out of the ring without releasing the figure four and still hold on to the ropes, like the Midnight Express and a couple others. I found it extremely impressive that he was able to do that. Um, by impressive, I mean sad. I don't know why they would allow that to happen, but he, he keeps that on for a while. Um should also mention that uh, September 13, 1986, on NWA Pro, uh, Dusty won the world television title from Arn Anderson. So to bring that into this first blood feud, because this is for the, the television title as well. Uh, immediately after that, Tully starts challenging Dusty for the television title, and Arn just gets shipped off to the side, I guess, and back to the tag team division, which I didn't understand that either. But uh, following that, we also have the famous October 18th bit where the horsemen follow Dusty Rhodes to a parking lot, get him out and beat the tar out of him. Um, the famous Dusty Rhodes uh, looking into the camera and saying, make it good. If you've ever seen that before, the horsemen, they're following him in their car. They pull up, they beat him down with a bat and leave him laying. Um, finally, after that, uh, Tully wants, Tully and uh, JJ won a first blood match, but Jim Crockett and the NWA said they do it, that they're not going to sanction it. But it's agreed upon anyway, and this match is held here, and, and here we go. Yeah, I've actually seen that uh, parking lot beatdown thing. They, they they play it fairly regularly on um, what's that show? That uh, Legends of Wrestling twenty four seven show. Like they they play that clip a few times because um, I think it's like one of the instances where you can see the Horseman uh, after some skull duggery, I guess the early Horseman. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, th as this match starts, we get a quite nasty looking headbutt from Dusty. Um, you know, to go with his streamlined new haircut. And he seems to have, like, Tully uh, over one ear in writing. What's he got written over the other ear there? Did it, did it say slut? Am I, am I, what did it say I, on that other ear? I'm pretty sure it's Tully on both sides. Oh, right, okay. I thought it said Tully on one ear and slut on the other ear. <laughs> slut would be funny. <laughs> um, A reference to Baby Doll. Yes. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I, was, that's what I was thinking, like... No. 
is he getting at her? <laughs> Maybe he's had his heart broken. Um. Anyway, we get some uh, stiff shots to the gut from Dusty in an elbow. He twists on the leg. He does two elbow drops on Tully's leg. Didn't J.J. Dillon outside of the ring looks an absolute mess. His shirt is untucked. His hair is everywhere. He just looks dishevelled. Um, Johnny Weaver just says absolutely nothing during this match. It's all coddle. I don't even know why Weaver was there. Like He, he didn't say anything. Um, we get a ref bump. Yet another ref bump on this card. Um, Tully uh, tries to attack uh, Dusty with Dylan's shoe. Um, Dusty suplexes Tully into the ref and goes to work punishing uh, Tully's head. Blanchett is actually bleeding by this stage, but the ref is out. D Dylan sneakily wipes away the blood with a towel and Vaseline. Um, and then Tully now has the roll of nickels, which uh, seems to be Dusty's big new idea for his big new booking idea for November 1986 is the roll of nickels, because this is the second time we've seen it. Um, nail, nails Dusty with the nickels, um, who now has colour. The ref kind of... The ref is Earl Hebner, by the way, and he kind of wakes up and sees Dusty with the blood and calls for the bell straight away. Dusty's pissed and shouts no at the top of his voice. It's Starcade 1984 all over again. And Tully is the new TV champ. Um, I thought this wasn't long enough, and y yet more ref bump finishes. Chad. Yeah, uh, this match was kind of perplexing for me because it mixed in some really uh, genius psychological points with the J.J. Dillon aforementioned bloody off the elbow. And then just the way J.J. constantly uh, tried to repair Tully when he started bleeding with the Vaseline. We saw more good managerial skills from him. But the finish, again, you know, Dusty, yes, he did book himself strong. But in some ways, he made himself look like a complete idiot. And this was an occasion of that where the ref is clearly down, incapacitated. He sees Tully bloody and then starts dancing around with his arms raised in the air like a complete idiot. Uh, and then, of course, it cost him where he gets hit with the, you know, nickels, quarters, whatever, and then is right there in front of the referee and grabs him almost like he didn't realize he was bleeding and sort of cost himself the match, which was, I mean, just completely stupid. All he'd had to done was, uh, you know, try to revive Hebner or something like that, and it'd have been a lot better. But I just hate when it's, you know, blatantly obvious to everybody that he has not won the match and a baby face parades around like he has. That's one of my least favorite finishes and really distracted from this match. It was a little short, too, but uh, the finish left a real bad taste in my mouth. Tully almost gets no offense in doing this match at all. No, not, not really. Uh, did you guys also notice, uh, I don't know if they show, showed it on the version you watched, Parv. Chad, I know you hunted down the match in other ways, that uh, JJ had Tully try to wear headgear at the uh, beginning of the match. Yeah, that was nice, too. Yeah, that, was that was a good moment. Funny. I mean, JJ, again, um, he's really rose up my ranks as a manager because I guess I just always had viewed him as more of a sort of 
passive intellectual manager that sort of sat in the corner with his hand under his chin, kind of pondering what was going on. But, you know, in this match, he was really active in the beginning, was really active when Tully first started bleeding, and really added a lot to the match. Yeah, I, I always thought JJ was at his best when he was with Tully. I always, for the whole time they're together, I think that these two are, are better than any other grouping of JJ with somebody else. This is kind of a similar story to the match with Garvin as well, where Dylan is really shown to be the differentiator. Because like, mm-hmm. um, do you remember that match where he was like cleaning him up between each round? I mean, this was very similar, wasn't it? Where he was, you know, using any, anything he could to to his advantage, wiping away the blood. Um, again, like Tully, basically, if Dylan hadn't been there, Tully would have lost the match. Yeah, I, the match was too short for me, though. It was kind of... Um, I got the impression with quite a few uh, matches on, on both shows, on both the Greensboro and the and the Atlanta show, um, that they were running out of time. Like, they seemed to... A lot of these matches seemed to be going short for me. Probably because they spent 15 minutes on Garvin Armstrong at the start of the show. Next match we have... Um, Road Warriors versus the Midnight Express Scaffold Match. And this is actually why this card is called the Knight of the Skywalkers, because because of the scaffold. Um, the Road Warriors are kind of standing up there already, and the Midnight Express with the cornet um, takes some time to get up there. Brian, any any story here? We, we basically, uh, yeah, we had some stuff going on into this one. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the Midnight Express would actually end up losing their world tag titles that we saw them with at the bash to, to the Rock and Roll Express. And after that time, uh, basically, we're kind of floating in limbo. You know, they want the Rock and Roll back. They'd get some rematches, but nothing big was going on. Uh, August 30th on uh, World Championship Wrestling, the, the Road Warriors returned to television um, and when in an interview had mentioned they were gone for a while because they had no one to fight. Uh, they were around for a couple of weeks until the, the September 20th, the early morning championship wrestling show. Uh, Jim Cornette is uh, running his mouth about the Midnight Express taking out the Road Warriors. Paul Ellering comes out and ends up slapping Cornette during the interview. But moments later, the Midnight Express attack LOD, uh, the Road Warriors, after a squash match. And uh, Jim Cornette and Bobby Eaton actually beat up uh, Road Warrior Animal pretty bad and leave him laying, and they take off. This was actually done so the Road Warriors could go to Japan for a while, but it also set up the major heat between these two teams. And, and after that, basically, the next couple of weeks are set up between the two, you know, talking trash, hating on each other. Um, there, there's another confrontation where the LOD actually comes out and beats up some of the, um, the Midnight Express as well, and that all leads to them announcing a scaffold match would be held between the two of them. And the highlight of this feud was pretty much the weeks leading up to it where the interviews were first the Midnight Express are training for the match on a scaffold, and Bobby and uh, Dennis are great on the scaffold, just petrified up there, scared or they're afraid to walk around. And then, of course, the other side of the coin was the Road Warriors. And if you can go check out, it happened on the October 25th World Championship Wrestling is where they see the famous interview where Hawk and Animal are standing on the scaffold with the pumpkins that says uh, Bobby and Dennis and they basically say this is what we're going to do to you and they 
where I'm off the scaffold. As you see them crash on the ground, it's a really cool visual as just the road warriors were planning on destroying the Midnight Express. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as this match starts, there's a lot of stalling from the Midnights. Um, they kind of climb halfway up the ladder and then start climbing back down again. Um, Condry in particular is pretty great at this, like, just shit scared. Um, Cornette complains to Shivani about this match being unfair. The warriors shake the scaffolding, and uh, I've got to be honest, I'd be shaking it too if I was involved in this. I wouldn't want to get up there. Um, anyway, they finally, Midnight's finally do go up, and everybody just looks so precarious up there. It's a long way down, about 25 feet they, they mention. Um, Condry has powder, and he blinds Hawk. Eaton also has powder, and he blinds Animal. The fans are just screaming. Um, Condry gets a nasty uh, shot on Hawk's, uh, you know, he drives Hawk's face into the scaffold, which has got to hurt. Um, Eaton, after a lot, you know, what, it's not long before Eaton is dangling from the scaffold. Um, now Hawk is uh, driving Condry's face into into it, into the platform. Um, I don't know if you I don't know if this was just my TV or or what, but there's a weird whirring noise at the Omni. Uh, sounds like there's some sort of siren or something. Really strange. Did anybody else have that on theirs? I, I don't remember hearing that. No. Um, Condry starts uh, kind of climbing down. Hawk goes after him. There's a sort of pressure cooker atmosphere in this uh, in this arena tonight. Um, Condry and Hawk are kind of standing on the structure below the scaffold and they have a kind of a fight from there. Eaton's dangling from the scaffold again. Then all four men are dangling from the scaffold. Condry drops uh, all the way down from the scaffold to the ring. Eaton falls all that way as well. The Royal Warriors get the win. Um, and then in a very silly move after the match, Cornette also climbs up there, which makes no sense at all in, in my view. It's almost like a kind of, you know, in horror movies where they do the exact thing that you shouldn't do. That's what Cornette does here. He climbs, like, I can't think of any worse place to go than on top of the scaffold where Animal is just waiting for you. Um, Adderang chases him up as well. Cornette also takes the drop. And uh, and that's it for this one. The Midnight and Cornet kind of like this scaffold match. They they did this in uh, Mid South as well, right? This is one of their speciality matches. Yeah, they've done it a bunch of places. Uh, one one other thing is when Jim and Cornet took his fall from the scaffold. Uh, Big Bubba was supposed to catch him. He didn't, and Jim Cornet ended up blowing out. I know one definitely, if not two, of his, both of his knees, legitimately blowing them out. So he was injured pretty bad after that. Yeah, I was really surprised that a non-wrestler would even take that sort of bump. I mean, I was surprised that anybody would take that bump. It's a long way down. Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know where you stand on scaffold matches. For me, it's pretty shitty, to be honest. I mean, you're basically just waiting for one big moment. You're waiting for the drop, and it's the anticipation of the drop. Um, you can't really do a lot up there. Do you feel that way, Chad? Uh, yeah, one just um, one quick antidote on the Cornette thing. In his shoot interview uh, that he did, and I think the year was like 2000, he talks about 
that in detail, and uh, it's it's really humorous to hear him because he does he does a great Dusty impression of uh, Dusty describing the match to him, and you know he talks about how Dusty said they'd have to take a little bump off the scaffold, you know, just a little bit, you know, of this twenty five foot scaffold. And uh, the analogy he makes is that Bubba would be there to catch him like the uh, cheerleaders at the football game. <laughs> so that was, I always enjoy that story when you see in, you know, what actually happened where Bubba was out of position and Cornette really screwed up his knee. Uh, scaffold matches as a whole, I know there's a Coco Beware uh, Memphis scaffold match that's held in high regard. I've actually never seen that match. Uh, all the scaffold matches that I've seen, I've pretty much hated. Uh, this was no exception. I, I really hated this match. I agree with you, Parv, that you are waiting essentially on one spot. This featured 10 minutes of basically people laying down on a scaffold and, you know, and then you had the big spot. So I, I really hated this match. Um, which uh, Cornette shoot is that out of interest? Because he's got about 50 million, so... Yeah, this one's the RF video one. Uh, it was, like, it's, it's a real long one. It's four or five hours. Oh, and I, I think, I I think it was, know. like, the first real long uh, style shoot interview he did with RF. I, I think I have that. So I think I probably listened to that, but it was a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it's one where he's sitting in his living room wearing kind of some Zubaz pants. And then at the very end of the shoot, they go to his uh, kind of wrestling memorabilia room. There's a really good one with Heenan where they're in that room as well, where they're just taking a look through some old programs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That now, that one was an ROH one. I have that one also. Yep. So, so yeah, I mean, did, did, did Brian, are you uh, kind of with us on this? or? Yeah, I, I really just, I'm not a fan of scaffold matches. Why not put these two in a cage and let them do what they do best and, you know, fight it out and, and really get this feud going? Or the other idea I had is make the scaffold a little wider, maybe. That way you can wrestle somewhat up there and throw each other around without the fear of dying. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I hated the... As a kid, though, they got me with it because as an eight-year-old, you know... That was really, I was thinking so much about that. Oh, God, I'd love to see that. You know, it'd be a great match to see what are they going to do up there, that stuff. So selling it beforehand was a good idea. Now, after seeing the first one, you'd figure they'd say, okay, we've learned our lesson. But they don't, and they do it again next year. I wonder if this is kind of something to pop the live crowd, though. I'd imagine seeing this in person would be a lot, you know, a lot more exciting than sitting in your living room watching it. You know, to, to see somebody fall 25 feet. Yeah, I mean, I guess seeing it, uh, you know, like you said, at the physical arena, might, it might look pretty cool, actually. Yeah. But, it, it, like, the way they do the fall isn't even that kind of, like, dramatic either. Um, you know, the, the, the only, I'm not a big kind of uh, spot guy. You know, the only one where I really, really, really marked out um, was Shane McMahon. If you can remember that, where he—I mean—that was insane. He—he he basically fell into the crash mat. Was it uh, Shane McMahon versus Steve Blackman? Yes, yes. When he fell off the Titan Tron, yeah, that was insane. That was like because you know Shane wasn't even a wrestler, and he was taking like that insane bump. Um, 
that's the only one where I kind of like I've never been big on the Hardies or anyone like that, so um, it's not really my scene, you know. Um, but yeah. So none of us are particularly high on the scaffold match. Next match is the uh, is another tag match, and this is our world uh, tag championship match. Um, interesting, really, because that last match could have easily been a work for the world tag championships. Uh, as well, couldn't it? A lot of good tag teams at this point. This yeah, is, uh, they, they, they were. Um, I, I know, like uh, the MX and Road Warriors were just kind of the, the the default second tag team feud, I guess, right now. Yeah, and this is the main event in the Greensboro um, portion of the show. Rock and Roll Express, the World Tag Champs, and they're against Ole and Arn Anderson, who come out to the Starcade music. Um, this is a cage match. So, it's um, any any story going into this, or is this basically you know who's the best tag team for the world? It, it, it really came down to who's the best tag team, and it's really still an extension of the whole Horseman feuding with you know all the baby faces. And uh, these two had feuded some more after the bash, but uh, they they kind of went their own ways by by mid August. Arn uh, Arn started mentioning on television that. He was going to start to defend the television title more often. It kind of looked like the feud was over. Then, as we saw a couple weeks later, Arn ended up dropping the, the television title to uh, Dusty, and um, Arn ended up getting back into tags. All of a sudden, a week later, after Arn drops the uh, television title, the Rock and Roll Express, in a September 20th interview on NWA Pro, acknowledged that the Andersons are all some the number one contenders to the tag titles. I don't know why or how. They became it as they weren't together for a few months, but they were. Uh, some other highlights leading up to this basically was a couple of fights between the teams as they led up here, and the Rock and Roll Express actually asked for this match to be in a cage as they wanted to keep the rest of the horsemen out and be able to defend their tag titles, probably with no run-ins or anybody hurting them. Uh, a couple other side notes from this is there was a couple of good television matches. I know Ricky Morton took on Ole Anderson in a pretty good TV match, uh, ended up on a brawl at the end. And uh, Robert Gibson was actually injured for a little while leading up to this match. And during that time, Jim Crockett allowed Ricky Morton to wrestle with anybody he wanted as a partner to defend the world tag titles around the house shows. Uh, and he actually had a litany of some interesting partners during that time as well. So those are the things leading in. It gets us up to the cage match. And what I think, I'll say it right now, is by far the match of the night. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I would, uh, I may well go agree, I may well agree with that uh, when we come to it. I have to have a little think about it. Um, we, we get Gibson and Ole to start. Uh, Gibson gets the best of it. But then Arn comes in, um, Gibson gets the best of that too. This is what I describe as the uh, face shine sequence. Um Morton comes in and the Andersons uh, gain control. Um, Gibson comes back in and uh, Anderson w Andersons work over his leg. Um, Morton's back in now, but the Andersons stay on top and uh, Ricky eats the cage a few times, gets colour, and we get a pretty long stretch sequence, uh, face in peril uh, sequence with Ricky Morton playing uh, Ricky Morton here. Um, mainly with the Andersons focusing on his arm 
The Andersons are pretty vicious uh, throughout this. We get a nice shoulder breaker from Ole at one point. Um, there's a few desperate hope spots from Morton. Um, Johnny Weaver, I know, is still bringing absolutely nothing to the table on commentary. Um, he only breaks his silence to speak in platitudes and cliches. We get uh, the awesome Arn and Anderson spinebuster. Um, the Andersons are just destroying Ricky Morton throughout this uh, match. We get another hope spot, but Morton gets cut off. And this is after about 10 minutes or so of him taking an absolute hell of a beating. Um, but Gibson comes in anyway. Um, Ole has Morton up for a slam. But uh, Gibson drop kicks Morton's back, who falls on top to get the three. Um, and I've just written here that this is pretty much um, Andersons versus R&R by the numbers in a cage. But that is nonetheless something of extremely high quality you know it is what it is but that that is a that is fan you know the Andersons are great at what they do the rock and rolls are great at what they do so it's gonna it's gonna be a good match Chad uh, this is one of my all-time favorite matches actually I, I really really have always loved this match uh, when I first got the Starcade 83 through 87 uh, tape set uh, probably a decade ago when I first started looking at some of these older wrestling shows, this was a match that really resonated with me then, and it still does. I love the structure that you have a tag match uh, that's in the confines of a cage. They use the cage well. Uh, you know, I think Earl Hebner as a referee does a real good job of enforcing himself, uh, you know, where Gibson doesn't look like he's not trying to help out Ricky when the Andersons start double-teaming, but Hebner does a good job of enforcing himself and getting him back to the corner to uh, maintain the tag structure. Uh, Ricky Morton takes one of his best beatings. The Andersons mix in their double-team moves. There's a spot right at the end where uh, Ricky Morton is going for the hot tag, and they show an angle from the crowd where you can see them you know, rising in their seats uh, because they think he's going to get the tag to Robert and he gets cut off right at the end. Uh, the finish where Robert essentially just says, you know, screw it, I've had enough, and comes in uh, leading to the drop kick with Morton penning, um, who I thought was very well done. So I, I really, really love this match a lot. Yeah, did Brian, you're high on it as well. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's for every reason Chad said, and the fact that the Anderson did what they did best and just tore Ricky apart, but the Rock and Roll Express still found a way to, to come out on top and keep their titles, although inadvertently, as we would see a couple weeks later, the Andersons end up costing them the World Tag Team titles, as they would end up losing them to Manny Fernandez and Rick Rude on television a couple weeks later, mostly due to Ricky Morton's injured arm from this match. This has got to be one of the best kind of face in peril sequences I can think of um, during this match. I mean, I don't know how long it goes on. Maybe at least 12 to 15 minutes, I'd say. Yeah, it's a 20-minute long match, or like 19 minutes. So it's it's they do everything perfect in a good time. Could work. Everything was great. Yeah, and just the different attack. I mean, they attacked Robert's um, leg. And, you know, sort of gave 
like an appetizer of them using their double team moves and whatever. And then when Ricky comes in, they start attacking the arm and running him into the cage. It just gets amplified. Yeah. How do you think this compares to the other uh, big cage match, big tag cage match we've seen in the, the final conflict? Um, I, I like this one better. I may be in the minority, um, but I, I like this one better. I thought the uh, the time cut out of it, I thought, was very uh, good. I mean, this, this match just appealed to my interest in wrestlings a lot more. You had a quick shine segment, which I enjoy, uh, from the faces in the very beginning, but then immediately... The Andersons start taking over on offense, and then a lot of hope spots. And I did like that if this was around 20 minutes instead of the 35 plus minutes that the final conflict cage match was. Yeah, I, and what I was say, what I was trying to say there, which is that you know this is by the numbers. If you were going to make a kind of textbook of how to do a tag match, this this the structure of this match would kind of be it, wouldn't it? With with the heels double teaming. Working on, you know, working on, uh, working on one of the faces who's in peril, and then a hot tag. Well, we didn't even get a hot tag here, you know. Then, you know, the the, uh, the finish coming after that uh, stretch sequence. You know, it's uh, structurally it's pretty much by the book, right? But the book is uh, the way it is for for a reason. Yeah, I would say if uh, if you know if somebody said show me a great example of a southern style tag match, this would be one of the first ones I would lean towards. Um, you know, the finish still made the Andersons look strong, and that you know they they threw everything they had them, and if you were grading the match on points, they would certainly be by far you know the winner. But uh, the Rock and Roll Express just got one high momentum move and one, so that was. I thought a very smart finish, satisfactory finish, and did make the baby faces look strong uh, while still having legs on the feud as a whole. Yeah, and you wouldn't come away from that match thinking that the Andersons weren't still a world-class tag team. Right, right. You didn't feel cheated by the victory, and you uh, didn't think the Andersons kind of, you know, were non-factors from here on out. So that was our main event in Greensboro. We quickly then go over to Atlanta, where it's Ric Flair versus Nikita Koloff. Now, one thing confused me quite a lot here, because obviously Flair is uh, the champ and one of the horsemen and the heel, so that makes Nikita Koloff the face, right, Brian? Uh, yeah, he 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 would have been the face here. Um, as we all know, again, Magnum was in his accident immediately after the accident. I guess he had to reshuffle everything. Decided to turn Nikita face, and uh, October 24th, uh, Dusty was going to be in a cage match with J.J. Dillon and Ole Anderson, and he brought out Nikita, who immediately attacked the horseman with him and, and turned face, and immediately after that, Nikita set his sights on the, the world title. Um, again, this was all stuff that had to be redone quickly because it's my understanding that, and, and if you see any of the television during this time, they're heading towards... Uh, Flair fighting Ronnie Garvin for the title and Nikita and Magnum fighting one more time for the U.S. title as Magnum, right before he gets uh, injured in some of his interviews, talks about getting back to the U.S. title from Nikita um, 
Garvin starts mentioning he's going to be world champion by the end of the year, and boom, they have to throw this together literally a month before Starcade to give us the main event as they lost what their plans had been. Now, the thing that really confused me coming into this is that Nikita is still wearing his CCCP top, which is obviously Soviet Union top. Um, I'd have thought that he'd stop wearing that once he became a face. <laughs> he, he keeps wearing that through, uh, what, 87 and maybe even 88? That's a, that's a little bit strange. So the fans are essentially cheering a Soviet, a Soviet Union guy. Because why, why is he still wearing the CCCP top? Yeah, they, they're going off the superpower thing, and the Russian and the American now together. So I just noticed that him and Dusty now were everywhere together as the superpowers. So we get a big match feel to start off with here. Um, a big stare down, uh, nose to nose. There's a huge amount of stalling from Flair. Um, and Nikita seems very strong. Dominates the early going. Uh, Flair uh, begs off, and he's quite vocal. He says, wait a minute, damn it, I give up. <laughs> Which was quite funny. Um, we get a big bear hug from Nikita. Um, Flair goes back to the outside, more stalling. And I'm thinking at this point, this match is taking quite a long time to get going here, because Flair is doing a huge amount of begging off and stalling. Uh, and, you know, we're a good seven, eight minutes into the match here, and we still haven't really seen a lot. Um, the story really is that Flair can't work out a strategy to beat Nikita. Finally, uh, around the ten-minute mark, um, Flair gets on top by taking out Nikita's leg on the post. He works on the leg, gets a figure four, um, pulling quite a lot on the rope, and he has this figure four locked in for quite a long time. Um, Nikita turns it, but Flair gets to the ropes straight away. And I just had a little thought. You know, we, we've talked about the figure four not being a very good finisher and not being very well protected. Um, but I've just... I had a little thought during this match that maybe the psychology of the figure four is that it's not a finisher, but, you know, it's not designed to make you submit. It's designed to really take its toll on the opponent. And the idea is, you know, basically that when you, when you get out of the figure four, your opponent is greatly weakened. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts on that? That it's not really a finisher, but a, a move that's just going to take it out of the guy you're working against? I mean, I think in the way that it's presented, that would be, you know, in the in the match, as far as in a match sense, you could use that. But uh, one reason why I don't totally buy, you know, I don't, necessarily 100% agree with that argument is in a lot of times you know maybe it was just a, a miscue but the announcers would talk about how many people he put away with the figure four and really sort of pushed it as a finishing move yeah. and uh, we just didn't see much evidence of that okay it was just a little thought I had when, uh, when that stuff was going on um, Rick Stewart and Tony uh, Schiavone um, both talk about the psychology here. They said that Rick Flair's got to stay on the legs, um, leave the upper body alone, because if he if he focuses on the strong upper body of Nikita, he's going to lose this, which uh, was some neat little analysis from them. 
Um, we get a nice back suplex from uh, Flair and the little flurry of jabs that he does to the head. Um, standard kind of Flair spot. I kind of thought that for a match this long, Nikita maybe doesn't have enough stuff to, to do. You know, uh, JDW on the pro wrestling only uh, forums always talks about, um, you know, Flair's good at just having stuff to do, um, you know, to fill up time. And uh, I did think a couple of times that Nikita doesn't have a lot of ideas here. He doesn't have a lot to go to. Um, anyway, Flair goes back to the outside. We get yet another ref bump from Tommy Young, and I'm starting to get a little bit frustrated at this. Um, Nikita gets a seven count to no avail. <laughs> um, Scrappy McGowan now is out. Um, but then he eats a clothesline from Nikita and lands on the outside um, on Tommy Young. So we get a double ref bump, and this is getting absolutely ridiculous at this stage. Um, then out of nowhere, Dundee, Garvin, Bubba, Rogers all come in and gang up on Nikita. Then the faces come out, uh, various different faces, including uh, Baron Von Raschke. We get a Pier 6 brawl, uh, and there's just chaos in the ring. And Young straight away calls for a, for a double DQ. Um, and uh, I've just written here that I'm getting really sick of the ref, uh, the ref bump BS finishes. Like, it's okay for one or two matches on the card, but this is like getting four, four matches plus per show that we're doing. Um, the brawl continues, and Flair is, uh, is pissed once Nikita. Uh, the heels drag him back to the locker room uh, while the faces kind of pile on Nikita and try to calm him down. Um, and the show finishes abruptly with no finishes, uh, with no interviews or um, goodbye speech from uh, Shivani and uh, and uh, Rick Stewart. So, what do what do we think of this one? Um, I, I actually I've watched this match a couple times before and never really liked it. I really loved it uh, at this point up to the finish. Um, I thought that as much as I had a problem with the Hulk Great American Bash match and making Flair look weak here, you know, it was very clear that Nikita had the power advantage. Flair did some similar bumps where he flew around for Nikita and couldn't really devise a strategy uh, for, you know, gaining the advantage. But as he worked the match, he was able to see some openings and he was able to use his, his uh, quick, wittiness uh, to overtake Nikita and come on offense more, whereas in the Hawk match, it was just basically Hawk had to be an idiot for uh, Flair to gain the advantage. Here, you saw Flair really strategizing to take over the advantage of Nikita. He worked him real well. I uh, thought the uh, kind of chop block to the leg looked good, and his punches looked really good in this match. Uh, the ref bumps were ridiculous. The bump... Uh, uh, on the sickle that McGowan took was brutal. Yeah. Uh, as, but then on the ending again, this is the four star Cadeway reviewed, and this is the third one that really the ending of the main event match felt like it was building to a you know a house show run. Yep. Uh, last last year, uh, Starcade '85 seemed to end conclusively, but of course we had the dusty finish angle. Uh, that resulted from it, and so now, it, and this is three years in a row, which is really disappointing, and I know at the end, I guess they tried to do a, a huge schmoz brawl with a, a lot of the locker room to kind of ratchet up the intensity between Flair and Nikita, but I was just sort of annoyed and pissed off at that point, and uh, 
the only other thing that I found interesting was uh, I, it's kind of weird that in an alternate universe, uh, Bill Dundee, Big Bubba, and Jimmy Garvin were the first three to kind of come out and start helping out Flair by uh, <laughs> tying up Nikita. So, like, I kind of saw them as, like, an alternate universe four horsemen unit, which it, it really would have fit uh, them four characters together. Uh, but that that was kind of interesting. But overall, the match I really liked up to the finish, but I thought the finish was really terrible. And on the biggest show of the year, which is what they claim, uh, kind of inexcusable. I was a lot less high on this than uh, you were, and I, I think it, the, the problem for me is that I was probably comparing it to the um, the other match that these two had, where face was um, Flair was the face and uh, Nikita was the heel. Yes. And, uh, I thought that match was really good and probably the best Flair match we've seen. We've seen, and for me, there was just too much stalling at the start of this, and it took a very long time to get going. And then once it did get going, almost like before you knew it, the match was over because you had the massive, uh, you know, the massive brawl at the end um, kind of brought things to an abrupt end. So, like, for me, you only really get about 10 minutes of actual match here because the, the, the begging off and the stalling takes... Like, if the match was going an hour, I could understand why you do that much stuff to take up time at the start. But, you know, for almost 50% of the total running time to, to be flared basically being on the outside and being reluctant to get in the ring is quite a long portion of the match to be taking up with that sort of thing. Brian? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with what everything you said and uh, Chad as well. I think the only thing I'd add is I, I they were almost stuck here. Like, you know, what are we going to do? They had a whole show planned around something else and it fell through. So you really need to have time to build this feud up so to really can give it a conclusive finish here. I don't know if it would have made much sense, actually, because you want to keep these guys going for a little while while you get stuff restructured and decide the, the way you want to go in 1987. So I kind of saw it that way. I didn't like it ending that way, not at all. But I think with what happened in the months leading up and what they were handed, that's what the best they could do. All right. So what do we think about Starcade 86 as a, as a, as a card? Because... When I was watching it, I thought, oh, actually, the show is pretty solid. You know, everything seems all right. But having gone through it, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of shows, uh, there's a lot of matches that don't really hit the mark. Yeah, I, I think it has, uh, you know, one great match, a few, uh, you know, good, solid matches, a lot of matches uh, in the beginning, especially that I didn't like. But I think if you started the match. Uh, if you just started the show with the, uh, I guess maybe the Sam Houston Bill Dundee match and then played that through, it'd have been pretty good. Uh, I had a lot of problems with the finishes of this show, so that's probably the biggest thing I'd take away from that. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, it's nostalgia wise, I love it just because I remember seeing this as a kid and things, but actually viewing it, you know, as a wrestling show, there's a lot of bad in this and. Yeah, for me, it's kind of like 85, beginning of 85 through the end of 86 is kind of, I think, Crockett's best two-year run ever. And just kind of, again, what happened with Magnum and everything, falling into this show at the end was kind of just like the end of the good stuff. 87 and 88 are okay for Crockett, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But them being like this upper echelon, can-do-no-wrong type of 
promotion kind of started to end right here. Um, one little fun thing that we did last time we did Star Starcade was um, you know, look at the Greensboro card and look at the Atlanta card and say which one you prefer to be at. So, shall we do this very quickly? Um, the Atlanta show was Brad Armstrong, Jimmy Garvin, um, Chris, uh, the Russians versus Mantel and Jaggers, um, Dundee versus uh, Houston, Houston, Bubba versus um, Hold on, Garvin, yeah, Ronnie Garvin Bubba versus Garvin, uh, Row Warriors versus the Midnights and Flair Nikita. That's your Atlanta show. And then your Greensboro show is um, uh, Hector Guerrero and Baron Von Reschke versus the Barbarian and uh, Pez Watley. Wahoo versus Rick Rude. Valiant versus Paul Jones. Um, Blanchard versus Dusty Rhodes. And the tag title cage match. Rock and Roll Express versus... Uh, on and Ollie. Um, I, I would, I, I guess I would just go with the Greensboro card. Um, and quite frankly, it's all based off the Andersons Rock and Roll Express match. Yeah, exactly. Why did you just could have said it any better? Greensboro cage match. Yeah, I think the Atlanta car probably, as an average, is stronger. Um, but the um the Greensboro card has got the big main event. The Greensburg card's got a lot of crap on it as well, though. Like, uh, right. you know, basically everything else. <laughs> um, I suppose the Tully Dusty thing is is fun enough. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I'd probably go to, I'd probably be in that in that show as well because. So, is there any question about our match of the night? You're both going for the cage match. Correct. Yes. Now, I may. I may go for a different match because I was a big fan of the Bill Dundee Sam Houston match. Um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna controversially go for Dundee versus Houston. Now I wouldn't defend that. I wouldn't say like if you ask me which is the better match, I'd obviously go for the for the tag match for the cage match, but um. For some reason, I really enjoyed everything Dundee was doing in that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna break ranks and go with that just to be different. MVP. Uh, for me, I would go with Ricky Morton. Um, he has a ton of great performances, but I think this, when looking at the uh, scope of his career, could definitely be uh, shown as a signature performance and. Uh, I thought he was fantastic in that tag match. Brian? Uh, my MVP for this, I think, would be Nikita because he basically had to change his entire way of doing things from that hated Russian to a baby face in a couple of weeks and still get all the fans that care about him quickly, and they do in the main event here. So I, I think the MVP would be Nikita for being able to step up so easily and get into that main event picture. And mine would be, surprise, surprise, um... Bill Dundee because I thought he was awesome in that and and this may well be the amount of exposure I've had to him because I haven't really seen a lot of him um, so you know maybe I'm being impressed by stuff he usually does but I actually just thought he was a like um, 
you know when they say like uh, you know if you're an actor and you've only got a small part, mm -hmm. you want to make it stand out. That's what he did to me. He was in a mid card match here and he stood out, um, which is uh, you know more than anybody else did in uh, a lot of those pretty crappy uh, mid card matches on this uh, show. And uh, finally, we got the Billy Graham Award. For me, I would go with Bobby Yeagers, um, Bobby Jaggers. Uh, he was—I mean, I know—I know he's sort of—he's a guy I've heard about from Central States and Puerto Rico. Haven't seen a ton of him. Uh, and here, I thought in the tag match that he was in, I thought he looked fat, slow, pretty terrible. So he's—he's uh, he's got my vote this night. Uh, for me, it's Jimmy Valiant, just because. Even in his moment of glory, he still gets his ass kicked and left laying in a pool of blood. And the final ending of Paul Jones basically raping his his dignity and everything else away from him. And all he got in the end was Paul Jones' hair. So, Jimmy Valiant for just finally being the nail in his coffin finally put in here. Um, for me, nobody brought less to this show than uh, Weaver on commentary. Like, seriously, what what was that? I I've never I've never seen a guy bring less to uh like he didn't even say he probably wasn't actively uh kind of offensive like Linda Curry but in terms of what he actually brought like he may have said about ten things all night so I'm gonna go with um, Johnny Weaver who 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 I think Chad picked uh, once was it you somebody picked him once before when he was the interview guy um, well I I picked him uh, he, he was actually wrestling. I think in yeah. the uh, Starcade '84 show. Um, so yeah, this is his second dip in the Billy Graham Award, or maybe it was. Oh no, it's the Final Conflict. That's what it was. Yeah, the yeah, Conflict. That's what it was. Because uh, in the Starcade match, I thought he did fine, but in the uh, Final Conflict match, I thought he brought nothing to the table. So he got my vote there, but he certainly didn't do anything of note in this tonight either. Yeah, and we've seen Weaver now suck as a wrestler, suck as an interviewer, and suck as, a, suck as an announced guy. So, um, I should mention that if you do go to the uh, Where the Big Boys Play kind of blog page thing, um, I, I have now listed all of the uh, all of the end of show awards we do, broken down by who picked who per show. So... Um, Hopefully, you know, when we've done another 20 or so of these, that will be interesting to look back on. It's already interesting to see some of the um, some of the trends. Um, I think this is the first show in a while where Tully Blanchard wasn't even in contention for him, him, uh, MVP. So that's broken quite a run that he was having. The uh, the other thing I just want to mention before I before I go here is that something uh, something absolutely awesome happened on the um, on the forums this week. I was uh, arguing with a Guy called Matt D about um, about the fallout of the uh, of the baby doll turn. Like, how did baby doll tur turn? Matt D was arguing that um, if you remember when baby doll uh, turned face, uh, JJ Dillon had convinced Tully that she was uh, cheating on him. Was that right, Brian? Was, that was the story? Yeah, uh, see that he had she had gone on vacation. And uh, she disappeared for a while, wasn't around to take care of Tully's needs. And uh, she said, oh, JJ, you let me go on the trip. And JJ said, oh, no, I didn't. And then he slapped her. So, so I was watching kind of, uh, I was watching this play out on the, on the horseman set that I have. 
and um, I said, you know, that's quite interesting that um, Tully Blanchard and J.J. Uh, Dillon kind of have this lurking in their in their relationship that Dillon's basically tricked him, so their relationship is based on bad faith. You know, if Tully would ever find out what Dillon had done, he'd be pretty pissed off, right? Yeah. Matt D was arguing that no, actually no, Blanchard was in on it from the start. That like he he was knew what Dylan was up to and was playing along with it because he wanted to be shot at Baby Doll for whatever reason. And I was saying, well, I don't think that works. I think that Blanchard actually did love Baby Doll or at least love the idea of being uh, of Baby Doll being his and that he would never go away with it. He would never go along with a plan like this. <laughs> so anyway, we were going back and forth and Matt D actually went, un unbeknownst to me, and wrote to J.J. Dillon um, who, oh, wow. who wrote back to him with a really long answer you know, he wrote a good paragraph there uh, to answer the question. He said, to answer your question, Tully was not part of any plan designed to dump Baby Doll. It was more a case of me seeing an opportunity to uh, possibly become Tully's uh, exclusive representative. Yep. It was a risky move on my part. I took advantage of the fact because it was uh, around the holidays and Baby Doll had been away for a few days. And he goes on. So basically, awesome. everything I said was right. <laughs> um, so th this, uh, this was... But probably the best moment of uh of my um kind of forming life uh as I'm, a, to look, I'm gonna have to look that up <laughs> as a guy who uh posts on wrestling boards it was kind of like i don't know if you've ever seen annie hall the uh woody allen film where the two guys are arguing in the queue uh about the film and allen just goes and gets the director and uh the director comes and you know puts this guy in the queue right it was kind of like that where uh you know dylan comes out and uh gives the definitive answer here pretty amazing <laughs> So, yeah, that made my week. <laughs> so, w where are we going to go from here, guys? Uh, are we going to try to do super towns in the super station? Uh, we can take a look at it and then see what we got here and then go from there. I'm going to take a look at it and we'll, we'll make a decision after that. Ch Chad, are you still around? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, I guess we can see. I know the first part of 87 has a few sort of interesting things where we might look at the the Crockett Cup and then there's that uh, episode of Worldwide that has the Flair Wyndham 45 yes. minute draw yes. I think yes. that, now that would be maybe interesting to look back on and see how it holds up so there's kind of a couple of directions we can go and I guess we'll just see which way we want to do Hey, uh, Parv, I gotta run. My my wife's calling me something with my kids. So, all right, guys. Well, well, well thank you very much for this week, and I, I look forward to getting into '87 with you guys. Amen, buddy. Great show. See you guys. See ya. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>